Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Good Grief. My name is Dr. Christine Malone, and in this podcast, we talk about trauma, tragedy, and survival. In each episode, I will interview someone that has gone through grief in some way, and we will discuss the impact it has had on their life. By sharing these stories, we hope that others won't feel alone should they be going through similar situations. Enjoy. Okay, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. My guest today is going to talk about how he has had diabetes for over 40 years, and he wants to educate people about the facts of this disease and how he's dealt with it. So guest, if you would like to introduce yourself and tell us about your condition and your story. Sure. First, thanks for having me, Christine. I, I truly appreciate the opportunity. My name is Chet Galaska. I'm not a healthcare professional of any kind, but I am a person who's had type 1 diabetes for over 40 years. I've done well enough with it that uh, after 30 years of no complications, I was asked to participate in the study at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Harvard University. Um, I've had it for another 10 or 12 years past that. I'm still in good health. The story is not really about me, though. Uh, it's about the fact that I've come to understand how poorly most people understand diabetes, and I'm trying to educate everybody, including the general public, about it. Part of the problem we have as diabetics is that people judge us for getting it. They think that somehow we're responsible for it by being overweight or eating too much sugar or whatever they may think. And those things are just not true, and that's something I'll talk about later on. As I get started, I'd like to explain to you why I'm doing this in the first place. I was in Chicago a number of years ago when Ron Santo was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Santo was a player for the Chicago Cubs back in the 60s, and he had type 1 diabetes. He didn't tell the Cubs about it because he was afraid they would fire him if they found out, and he may well have been right about that. At any rate, uh, Santo was type 1, and he was taking insulin. There's a story about him that really caught my attention, but before I tell you the story, you need to know a little bit about people who use insulin, and all type 1s do take insulin, along with many other uh, type 2s. Everybody knows that high blood sugar is what causes the long-term damage in your body. It affects everything, and it's responsible for all the terrible complications that, that you've heard of over the years. But low blood sugar is a problem also, but it's a different type of problem. Your brain uses a glucose directly from the bloodstream. And that means that if the sugar level in the bloodstream is low, the brain starts to go haywire. All things that the brain controls don't work as well as they should. That happens when you have too much insulin in your body and not enough sugar in your bloodstream. It drops it too low. Now, here's the story. Santo was in a game in Chicago. It's the last of the ninth. The Cubs are down by two. There are two men on base, and there were two outs. Santa was in the on-deck circle. He's felt the symptoms of low blood sugar coming in, uh, coming on. Uh, these include things like getting shaky. You start to sweat. Uh, your, your vision starts to go. You know, sometimes you can see a double, or it just gets very fuzzy. If it gets really low, you can pass out. So it's nothing to fool around with. Luckily, it's easily treatable. All you need to do is eat something with sugar in it to boost that sugar level in your bloodstream back up and the problem goes away. So Santa was in the on-dexer. Uh, again, down by two, two outs, two men on base. 
And Santa was praying that the guy at the plate will make it out to retire the side so he can get back to the dugout and eat his candy bar. Well, instead, the guy walks. So Santa said he walked up to the plate and he looked up, seeing a triple. There were three scoreboards, three pitchers, and 30-some-odd people standing out in the field. So when the pitcher wound up and threw the ball, it looked like it had a slinky attached to the back of it. So he swung at it and put it out of the park for a walk-off Grand Slam home run. Wow. So, yeah, it's amazing. So he, he made it around the bases, touched home plate, and jogged into the dugout in time to eat his candy bar. Now, most people would think, wow, what a great story. What a dramatic thing. A you know, walk-off Grand Slam home run. You know, wonderful. Well, I heard the story. I thought his real victory was making it to the dugout without passing out. You know, that, that was just amazing because he could, could very well have passed out. Well, Santo kept that story secret for 10 years until Ron Santo Day when he retired. I read that story and I thought, wow, this is so cool. I got to start telling people. Yeah. So I came home and I did that. But I came to find out that nobody understood diabetes well enough to understand how powerful that story was. So I also understood that when they started asking me about diabetes, that I did not understand much about uh, type 2 diabetes. Type 1 I got because I've been dealing with it. But with type 2, I had most of the same misconceptions about it that other people do. So what I decided to do is research diabetes and educate myself about it, especially about type 2, because 95% uh, of people with diabetes have type 2. It's by far the most common form. And what I found really struck me. Uh, I discovered that some things that are taken at face value just aren't true. Uh, one of the big things is weight. That was the first thing I looked into. I found out that the CDC says that 70% of us are overweight, but about 10% of us have diabetes. Well, if weight causes diabetes, why is it only 10%? Another thing is that many thin people who eat well and exercise become type 2 diabetic. So why would that happen? These people aren't overweight. So these things just didn't jive. And when I looked into it, it turned out that diabetes doesn't start because you're overweight. It starts because of a precondition called insulin resistance. Nobody actually knows how insulin resistance starts, but we do know that there are at least 117 genes associated with type two diabetes. And some of these apparently affect uh, insulin resistance. Now, I'm going to explain insulin resistance in a few uh, minutes, but before I do, I'd like to explain how diabetes actually operates. In a normal person, when they eat food, it gets digested into glucose. Glucose is a very simple sugar, and it winds up in your bloodstream, and it travels throughout your body. When your pancreas senses that, that, insulin, that uh, the glucose is in the bloodstream, it produces a hormone called insulin. Insulin's job is to be a key that unlocks the cell walls of every cell in your body. So it travels along with the glucose in the bloodstream and unlocks the cells. The glucose leaves the bloodstream and goes into the cells where it's used for energy. When you eat, your blood sugar does get high temporarily, but in a normal person, as they produce enough insulin to open all the cells, that glucose gets absorbed and it disappears from the blood. That's how normal people control blood sugars. 
With diabetics, that process is short-circuited. With type 1 diabetes, which is what I have, I've been, uh, I have an autoimmune disease. And what that's done is gotten my body's white blood cells to attack the insulin-producing cells in my pancreas. When it does that, I no longer produce insulin. So with type 1 diabetics, we have to take insulin directly. Uh, the only way to take it is by injection because it gets broken down in digestion. So in that sense, type 1 is a simpler disease. You know, there's, there's one way to treat it, and that's insulin. Type 2 is more complicated. Type 2 starts with insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is, just as the name suggests, it makes your body resistant to insulin. So your cells, all of a sudden, they start requiring more and more insulin to be unlocked to allow the glucose in. In a process that can take eight to 10 years, your insulin resistance gets worse and worse. It makes your pancreas work harder and harder to produce enough insulin. And the result is that after that amount of time, your pancreas no longer has the ability to produce enough insulin to open up those cells. And that's when pre-diabetes happens because your sugars get moderately higher. Uh, as time goes on, uh, it gets even worse to the point where you reach diabetic levels of sugar in your blood. So with both of those diseases, we know that genetics is where it starts. You know, there are triggers that we don't understand. Uh, in fact, there's a lot that we don't understand, but we do know that the diabetic is not to blame for getting this. The easiest way to see this for yourself is to just look around. You probably know people who are overweight who are not diabetic. And you may well know thin people who uh, are also diabetic. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, we used to play pickup basketball every Friday night. Uh, he's thin, always stayed in shape, ate well, uh, did all the right things. And he, we went out to a lunch one day and he said, uh, Chet, you got type 2 diabetes. Um, he was shocked. And, you know, there, there is grief that goes along with it. You know, he, he, he was a tough guy, but... You know, he denied he had it in the first place because when you're first hit with it, you, you can't believe that you're, you're going to have to go, go through all these changes just to live. But he accepted it, and then he's doing well with it. But this is the kind of thing that happens. Um, yeah, you're here with, a point that I want to make sure we, um, we expand on, which is um, if a person, when a person is diagnosed, um, the grief of... Uh, how I'm no longer able to do these things I used to do. So yeah. uh, you no longer can eat these certain things or, or you have to eat certain things or you have to take medications, whatever it might be, and how that impacts your life. So mm -hmm. I know type one diabetic, you're probably diagnosed at a younger age, type two diabetics, not probably at a, at a later age. So they have to make changes to what they're doing, well, how that really yeah. works for them. So can you speak to that a bit? Sure. Well, well, first, let me explain to you how I came to find out that I have diabetes. I was, I never got sick. In fact, I still never get sick. But 42 years ago, I became sicker than I had ever been in my life. I spent three days on the sofa and I could barely move. After that, I was fine for a while. But then I found that I, was, I had a lot of things happening that were not typical for me. I was thirsty all the time. I was urinating a lot. I was losing weight. Uh, I was tired. I didn't have any energy. And 
you know, I just kept, you know, getting through it, you know, just slogging through the days, day after day. Um, but then one day I had to go, I was uh, the president of the company. I was in charge of a lot of things. It was a small company. Uh, it was a company that uh, I, I co-founded with a partner back in 1979. But I, I was in charge of the, the insurance. So I went to Blue Cross to meet with them. And as I was sitting in the waiting room, they had a bunch of brochures about various common diseases. One of them was diabetes. So I read that folder just by happenstance. And it turned out that I have all the symptoms except for the ones that apply to women. So it was pretty clear to me that uh, that's what I had. So I made an appointment with a doctor and I came in and he asked me what brought me there. Then I told him I thought he had diabetes and he gave me that skeptical work that he look that he gives everybody who comes in with a wrong diagnosis, took a blood sample, and then he came back and said, well, you've got diabetes. So for me, it wasn't the shock of some doctor out of the blue telling me something that was totally unexpected. I had a pretty good idea that that's what I had, but I also had some secondhand experience with it because my younger brother had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes eight years earlier. So I knew from living with him and watching him handle it as well as he did, that my life wasn't over. You know, I, I could do most anything that I could before, before I had diabetes. So I had that advantage. But I can see where people get in, in absolute shock with that diagnosis. In fact, I, I know a lot of them. I know exactly, you know, what, what that must be like. Um, I'm sorry, Christian, what was the second half of your question? I was just saying, how, how do you um, accept that diagnosis and incorporate it into your life to move forward? Right. Well, uh, that's where my brother's experience, he was only 15 when he got this. My, his experience was good because he showed me that my life wasn't over and I was going to be able to do lots of things. Uh, it's really a myth that the diabetes restricts you from doing a lot. It's just that we have the burden of watching our blood sugars and making sure they don't get too high and they don't get too low. And with experience and knowledge, you can learn to do that. Now, there are people with diabetes who do all kinds of things. Uh, it's a guy named Patrick Peterson. He's a NFL cornerback. In fact, he's one of the best cornerbacks in the league. He's got type 2 diabetes. Uh, quarterback for the Chicago Bears was a type 1 diabetic. So diabetics can do a lot of really strenuous things, but you have to know what you're doing. One of my favorite quotes about diabetes is from Dr. Elliot Jocelyn. He's the guy that that clinic at Harvard is named after. He's a pioneer. And one thing he said is that the diabetic who knows the most lives the longest. And the way you can deal with this the best is becoming educated about the disease and what you need to do to control it. Um, and this is something that very many people just don't get. Uh, part of it, I think, is that the uh, medical system, especially today, doesn't have enough time to explain it. You know, like I'm benefiting by Christine's grace here of having me on and giving me enough time to explain this stuff because people listening to this will learn things that they won't get from their doctor just because the doctor doesn't have enough time to go into it. So that's one of the things I'm trying to do is to, to tell people what they need to do. And let's, let's jump right into that. You know, we all know that diet is a big part of dealing with diabetes. And the, the common person thinks that sugar is poison for diabetics or um, it makes it worse. And uh, they are correct about that. 
Uh, they're correct about needing to control that, but they're incorrect about it causing di diabetes. With your diet, one thing that people need to know is that carbohydrates are the key thing to look out for. The reason for that is that carbohydrates are essentially a form of sugar. When you eat a piece of bread, that bread gets digested into sugar. In fact, if you eat a gram of bread, you will digest into one gram of sugar. It's a one-to-one -one trade on. So we need to be looking out for carbohydrates. The question is, you know, where, how do you know what the carbohydrates are? And the answer is that the answers are all over the place. There are books uh, that are uh, calorie counter books that they often count carbohydrates also. Uh, if you happen to have Alexa, you can ask Alexa, you know, Alexa, how many carbs in an ear of corn? And she'll tell you that. You can go online and ask that question also, and, and that will tell you. So it's not hard to know where the carbohydrates are. What I suggest people do is look at their own diets. You know, don't worry about everything that's in that, that calorie counter book. You only have to really worry about the stuff that you're actually ingesting. If you look at your diet, your breakfasts are usually pretty much the same. Uh, your lunches are probably pretty much the same too. And dinners will vary more, but they'll probably repeat over the course of a month. So what you really need to do is take a look at what you're actually eating. Now, if for breakfast, if you're having uh, two pieces of toast loaded with, with uh, grape jam, well, you've you got a lot of carbohydrates. You know, the jam has sugar and the uh, bread is carbohydrate. So you might want to think about maybe eating one piece of toast or maybe eating less jam or something like that, doing something to, to reduce the amount of sugar that you're actually putting into your body. With lunch, uh, most of us have sandwiches. With what I do with sandwiches is I, I use one piece of bread, but I load it with protein. Thing about protein is that it doesn't raise your blood sugar at all, uh, and proteins are all over the place. You know, there are meats like you know chicken or beef or or fish. Uh, eggs are, are protein. Uh, there are a lot of proteins out there that you can put into a sandwich. Uh, if you put the protein in to fill you up, two things happen. You know, one is that you are filled up. And the other thing is, is that it slows down the, the digestion of the carbohydrate. So it evens that out uh, and it keeps you feeling full for longer. So that alone will cut the carbohydrate quite a bit. Uh, for dinner, uh, again, just look at your plate and just find out what's in the carbohydrates of the various things you're eating. And again, you'll find that if you're eating protein, you can have all that you want. Uh, fats don't raise your blood sugar either. It's really the carbohydrates. So you identify them and figure out what to do. A friend of mine uh, became a diabetic, not the guy I mentioned earlier, somebody else. And he knew that I, I taught the Challenge Diabetes Program. So he asked me to go out to breakfast with him one morning. So, so we did. And it turned out that he liked raisin bran. Tell me he had it for a snack every night when he went to bed. Well, if you look at the nutritional label on, on raisin bran, which is another great way to find out what the carbohydrates are, what you'll find is that it's very, very high in carbohydrate. And not only does the bran have carbohydrates, but the raisins do, and then they sprinkle sugar on top of it uh, just for good measure. 
So if you're going to have cereals, uh, Raisin Bran, as far as carbs go, is a bad choice. You know, others, uh, like Cheerios, for example, are a lot less. Uh, but frankly, in general, uh, those, those breakfast cereals are all pretty high carb. But the thing to do is work around the edges. You know, don't think you're going to change your diet totally overnight. But figure out ways that you can manage to get the carbohydrates down. And what you will find is that your blood sugars will be low. So in a nutshell, that's, that's what diet is about. It can get very complicated. But the thing to do is just remember that it's the carbohydrates. The other thing that doesn't get anywhere near so much attention as it should is exercise. Now, I know a lot of people don't like to exercise. And when you think about it, you think about training for a marathon or going to the gym or you know, doing all these really strenuous things. But the fact is that you don't have to do those things in order to have exercise that lowers your blood sugar. I'll tell you why. When you move, and by moving, I mean anything that makes your skeleton move. It's not doing how, how fast or, or how strong you have to be. It's just moving your skeleton. Every time you do that, you activate your muscle. And muscles either burn the, the sugar that's in your blood right away, or they store it. So being active will draw that sugar right out of your bloodstream right away. Uh, and if people would like to test it out, all they really need to do is check their blood sugar, go for a walk for you know maybe 20 minutes or so, uh, wait for a half hour or so, because it does take a little time to activate. But what they'll do is that they'll find out that their blood sugar has dropped. Uh, in fact, as a type 1 diabetic who's got insulin, I have to be careful that I have enough uh, sugar in my blood before I do something like mowing the lawn, for example, because I know that with the, lawn, the amount of energy that the lawn mowing takes, I'm going to drop my blood sugar a little by about 100 points. So it, I mean, it's something that does work. And I can tell you from personal experience, it doesn't take really heavy exercise to do it. So the combination of reducing your carbohydrates and going for a walk, even going for a walk every other day, because the exercise actually is cumulative. Uh, you, it'll last for a couple of days. And if you can't do for the, the whole 20 minutes at one time or a half hour or whatever, do it in five or 10 minutes spurts. If you're spending uh, a half an hour vacuuming your house, you're putting in a half hour of exercise. Every time you walk up and down the stairs, you're putting in a few minutes of exercise. So the lesson here isn't to go out there and become a, a, a world-class sprinter. It's to just not be a couch potato. As long as you're up and moving, you are doing yourself a world of good. Those two things that I just explained about carbohydrates and exercise are critical things that anybody can do and they don't cost you anything. It might cost you a little more money to buy protein. I'll grant you that. But these are things that are not uh, magical cures where you're going to have to go out and pay a lot of money for, for uh, medication or you're going to have to buy exercise equipment or anything like that. These are really things anybody can do. Okay, that sounds amazing. And let's say I'm living a, a sedentary lifestyle and I like my foods, whatever I'm eating, and I'm given this diagnosis. And now I have to make changes and yep. I don't want to make those changes. And they feel like they're restrictions on me. I mean, I'm a very busy person. 
I work a lot, so on and so forth. I don't have time to be counting calories and carbs and so on. So um, if I was given that diagnosis, for example, I'd have to rearrange and re, you know redo what I do um, in my life, what I eat, what I do, when I can exercise, so I have to I count calories, so on and so forth. So that in and of itself is a um, a great imposition on, on me if I'm given that diagnosis. So what would you say to someone in that spot where, I mean, I want to be healthy, but I have this, you know, my lifestyle is this and I'm you know, 60 years old, whatever. And now I'm given this diagnosis and I have to make these changes. And how do I do that in a way that doesn't just um, make my life miserable? Sure. Well, you, you, you do it on around the edges using common sense. It's easy to, how do I put this diplomatically? There are all kinds of diets out there that require you to measure foods and, and be very regimented with, with what you're doing. Uh, in my own personal life, I don't do that stuff. I know the things that are carbohydrate, and I know that they will raise my blood sugar. And so I limit them. Um, and I've been able to do it well enough that my A1C, now let me explain what the A1C is first. Uh, that, that is the gold standard for diabetes care. Uh, it's the way that, that they measure how good your control has been. If your, your A1C measures your average blood sugar over the previous two to three months, so it's a long-term gauge. And uh, another point too is that you know, temporary high blood sugars aren't the things that do the damage. It's a high average blood sugar. So a lot of diabetics freak out over having a, a real high reading uh, when really, as long as they get it back down, they, they should be fine. Um, but what you need to do is just be able to identify those carbs. Now, here's, here's something that actually happened. The woman who did the book design for me, um, did this design work, but she never actually read the book. She became type two diabetic and she called me up one day and said that her doctor had prescribed a medication for her and she went to the pharmacy and it turned out the uh, drug was gonna be $500. And she told me to take it back. She wasn't gonna pay that kind of money for, uh, for that medication. So she decided to read the book. Um, so what she did is exactly what I just laid out. She identified her carbs and she cut them down. She didn't stop eating them, she just reduced them. And then she went, went for a 20 minute walk uh, around her, her neighborhood every day. She did this for three months. And then she had another appointment with her doctor. She said she went into the doctor and her A1C was down below seven, which is really a very good thing. It's what the medical profession would like to see. And you know, she explained to the doctor that she did it just by watching her carbohydrates and doing that moderate exercise. And he was pretty impressed. Uh, and I thought, well, that's cool that he's impressed, but why didn't he tell her to do those things rather than prescribing that medication? That's, a, that's another story. The point is that those simple things do work. Now, you need to get a handle on diabetes. You know, you have to know one, that you didn't cause it yourself, so you have no reason to feel ashamed or, or guilty for having it. But on the other hand, you do have it. And what you have is an incurable disease that if you don't take care of it, 
it will kill you. Um, next employee of mine got diabetes. I ran into him a few years ago. He was in a wheelchair. He told me that he had type 2 and he didn't take care of it. And after a number of years, he couldn't take the pain anymore. So he went to the hospital and they took one leg on one day and the other one on the next. He told me that if I ever got diabetes, that uh, I should take care of it. So, you know, there's, there's a case that I know personally where diabetes literally killed this guy. But it brings up another issue. And that is the guilt and shame that comes with a diabetes diagnosis. It is so unfair, but it's got really damaging consequences. One of them is that when this guy, his name was Jerry, he worked for me probably for 20 years. And I had diabetes for, for most of that time that, that uh, he worked for me. But I got it when I was 29 years old. And I kept it a secret because I didn't want people thinking less of me because I had diabetes. So I only told people who really had a need to know. And as a just sort of you know regular employee, Jerry didn't have a reason to know, so he didn't know. And I've, I've thought about him a lot because what if I had been open about the diabetes and wasn't afraid of being stigmatized because I had it? What if everybody knew that I had it? And he came to see me 30 years ago and said, uh, Chad, I've got diabetes and I know you do too. What can you tell me about it? And I could have told him all these things. But that opportunity wasn't there because I kept it secret. And many, many diabetics do the same thing. Um, I would never equate diabetes with cancer. Cancer is another whole level of seriousness. But cancer patients do have something going for them that diabetics don't. And that's that everybody knows they're literally going to fight for their lives and they're respected for taking it on. Everybody knows it's hard and they're behind them 100%. With diabetics, it's not that way. You know, you're very likely to be criticized uh, as a diabetic. Um, matter of fact, during the holidays, if you read diabetes publications, there are always stories in there about handling the diabetes police. Uh, the diabetes police are people who don't understand diabetes who will be at your company Christmas party looking over your shoulder and asking if you should really be eating that cookie. Uh, those people are out there. Um, and so, you know, th that's a real problem with, with uh, people not understanding di diabetes. If they understood diabetes, they would know that you didn't ask for it and that fighting it is really a hard thing to do. You had mentioned uh, changing your life to try to take care of diabetes. It's true. You do have to change your life. You know, you can do it around the edges and get used to it little by little, which is what I did. And you finally get up to a point where uh, you're able to handle it pretty well, and those lifestyle changes just become part of who you are. You know, at that point, it's it's uh, it's just part of your lifestyle. Uh, and as hard as it may seem, you, you will you will get there. By the way, I mentioned that um, doctors like to see an A1C of under seven. Mine runs six point six and six point seven. It's been that that way for years. So, you know, it's doable. It's absolutely doable. But you have to be, you have to be smart enough to learn about it. And you have to be tough enough to do it because it does take a certain amount of willpower to make this stuff work. Yeah, those are all good, great points. So I, I shared with you before we started recording that my father 
passed away due to complications of diabetes when he was the only 59 years old. Um, yep. And I remember um, the last, actually, I, he only told um, his family about his diagnosis about maybe a year or two before he passed. Um, oh. I don't think, I think he was diagnosed before that, but he just didn't want to share it with us. And my sense was because he felt he was um, responsible for coming down with, if you will, like a virus yeah. um, being yeah. diagnosed with with, um, with diabetes. He was um, overweight and his doctor really made him feel like, you know, he just needed to lose weight and he could change his diet and all this would be wonderful for him. Um, and it didn't work and he had amputations and it was it was really hard, hard for him and, and for the rest of us. So uh, for my own self, as the daughter of someone who's passed from complications of diabetes, I've told my primary care doctor over the years, you know, this is what my father passed from and I want to make sure um, my, my physical exam, blood work, you know, whatever. And I've been told for years, well, just make sure you don't, you know, have excess weight, don't drink too much alcohol and all these, these things that feel like I'm in control of. So I can control my weight and my alcohol, but does that really control my, my possibility of having this diagnosis of diabetes. In other words, to your point that we're blamed for, people are blamed for this diagnosis to say you, you didn't do this thing or you did do this thing that didn't um, that didn't relate to, you know, healthful choices um, and so on. And that that's that's hard. I mean, there are there are obviously diseases in, in this world that you know we can avoid by diet and and not exposing ourselves to whatever. Um, but this isn't really one of them. So for it to have that stigma attached, um, yep. you know, really makes it seem like, you know, the stories you started with, with the, the, the athletes not wanting to share, you know, what they're going through because they didn't want to be, didn't want to be, um, you know, uh, discriminated against whatever it might be. Um, put this in a category of why is this a shameful thing as if people are, somehow less than if they have this diagnosis. So um, to me, it feels like, you know, to be able to open oneself up and say, yes, this is the diagnosis I've, been, I, I've had, you can make these changes and so on, but not to be blamed for you know, the life choices I've made that have perhaps in your mind brought me to this diagnosis. Well, let me, this is complicated, but I, I can explain to you the root of why doctors tell you that about weight. When they tell you you've got diabetes, it means that your, your blood sugar level has gotten over a certain point. There's a threshold, it's uh, 126 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Uh, once you're over that, they say, well, yeah, chronically, uh, you've got diabetes. And one of the reasons is that you're overweight. Now, it ignores the insulin resistance that I talked about earlier. You have no control over that, and that's what underlies diabetes. If you don't have insulin resistance, you will not be diabetic, no matter how much you weigh. Now, weight comes in to play uh, after you've got insulin resistance. There are two kinds of body fat. There's subcutaneous fat, which is the soft, squishy stuff on the outside of your body, but there's another kind called visceral fat, 
Visceral fat is hard and it's packed internally around your organs. Visceral fat makes insulin resistance worse. So that it contributes to diabetes because it, 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 it requires your pancreas to produce even more insulin uh, than it would otherwise. So they tell you to lose weight because they want you to lose that visceral fat. Luckily, the visceral fat is the first fat that goes, which is why they tell you to lose five to 7% of body weight. Uh, when you do that, you knock down that visceral fat and that does uh, help improve the insulin resistance. So it doesn't, it causes diabetes in the sense that it's a factor in raising your blood sugar, just like eating too many carbohydrates and not exercising are also factors. You know, there are factors in managing it, but they do not cause it. But the medical profession separates insulin resistance from diabetes. They, they treat it as though they were, they were separate things, but you can't have one without the other. And I think that's a failure in the medical establishment's part to make that disconnect. It's a curious thing, Christine. I've been going to uh, doctors for a long time. You know, I've met a lot of medical people. A lot of medical people who are not specialists do not understand what I just explained about insulin resistance. But if you go to an endocrinologist or a certified diabetes educator, which is a highly trained diabetes specialist, what you find is that these people understand this perfectly. And they're more than willing to explain that to your patients. But if you go to a medical professional who doesn't know these things, you know, all they know is that weight's a factor and they tell you, you got to lose weight. Of course, the inference is that by being overweight, you cause the diabetes. And we know that that's not true. You yeah. cause the diabetes by their, do you get what I'm saying here? I totally. So um, I want to, um, are you saying that a person who's been diagnosed with diabetes should seek care from a provider who has that experience, perhaps an endocrinologist or something, or what would you recommend um, for someone yeah. in those spaces? Yeah. Either one of those uh, that I mentioned, uh, endocrinologists do specialize in, in those hormonal diseases and insulin is a hormone, diabetes is a hormonal disease. So those guys and, and women uh, really know their stuff. Now, certified diabetes educators, um, they're a relatively new specialty. I think they've only been around for 20 years or so. When I found out that they existed, uh, I made an appointment and I've had several and man, they, they really know their stuff. I have gotten really good uh, nuts and bolts information from them. And here again, you know, they know that the insulin resistance story, you know, uh, so that is a specialty that, that I would go to. Absolutely. Um, and it's kind of nice too, you know, they, they, they spend time with you with, with the CDE, they, their appointments will be for an hour. So they actually have the time to talk to you. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the part of the problem with the medical profession is that the typical office visits are way too short for this kind of discussion. But with CDEs and endocrinologists, they make a point of giving you enough time so that you can get the information you need. Uh, and that's that's the reason they're so powerful. So yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Um, so I do want to get to the point. Um, I know that you have a book out and I want you to talk about that and where it's available and what you um, what what is in your book. Sure. Uh, the book is it's called The Diabetes Book. 
what everyone should know. It's deliberately titled that way because really it's it's for everyone. I would like to educate the entire community about diabetes. And I would also like to teach diabetics the basic things that I've learned over the years. I wrote the book in a, in a common sense, everyday way, using a lot of uh, real life stories from people to get the point across well and easily. So uh, people who read it really like it. Uh, and, and it's helped a lot of people. I, I know that for a fact. Uh, it's available on Amazon and you can get it either in an ebook or a paperback. So, you know, for anybody who's got diabetes or even just wants to learn about it in a painless, fast way, uh, this would be a good place to do it. Uh, the other thing I've done is develop a program called the Challenge Diabetes Program. I was giving this uh, before COVID. Uh, I give it to a lot of community groups. Uh, there's a thing locally here sponsored by the University of Massachusetts called the Men of Color Health Awareness Program. I was doing the, the diabetes uh, program there for them. And it's essentially the stuff that's in the book, but it's broken down uh, with a PowerPoint presentation and all sorts of things. Uh, and what I'm going to be doing is making that available to the public uh, online, but I haven't quite gotten there yet. It'll probably be a few months before I can do that. Uh, but if you'd like to check on that, you can go to my website, which is challengediabetes.us, and make sure you use the US and the not the dot com. Uh, but you'll you'll see more about me, and you'll see more about the uh, the program as time goes on too. So that's it. We will definitely when the, when this episode airs, we will definitely have a link for your book as well as to your, your website. So I appreciate those resources. So do you have anything you would like to add as we close um, thoughts, comments about, you know, a person with this new diagnosis or my, my friend or my family member has this new diagnosis and how to feel more hopeful about what's going on? Yeah. Um, my Final point would be that you need to, as hard as it is, you need to recognize you have a very difficult disease. But on the other hand, you need to recognize that if you learn about it and do the right things, and these are things that are doable, they're absolutely doable, you can live a long, healthy life. People live uh, for 80 years, 90 years with diabetes, believe it or not. But these are people who learned what they had to do, and then they did them. A second point is that we all fall off the wagon sometimes. So don't flip out if you, you can't resist that, uh, that bowl of ice cream uh, because your temporary high blood sugar will go away as long as you, uh, you know, do what you need to do, which is probably go for a walk to, to knock it down or just wait for a day or two. That temporary sugar is not going to kill you. It's the average that, that it's going to do the damage. So as long as you do the right things most of the time, you can live a, a good life. And I guess that's it. Great advice. And I love your positive attitude. So with that, we will close. I appreciate you joining me tonight, Chet, and I wish you all the best. Thanks. Same to you, Christine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Good Grief. To hear more about my personal story, please pick up a copy of my book, The Day I Became the Spider Killer, a memoir of trauma, tragedy, and survival, available in paperback, Kindle, and Audible 
via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online book retailers.